0: you want, you can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, well you might find, you get what you need. Oh. Morning, I'm John LaBelle, your host, and this is Visionaries and Pardon My Cold. They gave me a microphone without a cough button, so I'll just turn away to hack occasionally. Um. Uh, and we were just listening to Salenti on PRN before I came on. And is this a great radio station or what? <laughs> so uh, I, if you don't, uh, why don't you develop the habit of having it uh, ready to go on your desktop, laptop, phone, and you just tap in when something else gets boring, or you know, you just wonder who's on, and. Actually, I was thinking about Gary Knoll, who will be on at noon, and I want to talk about science today. Before that, um, we're here every Monday at 10 a.m. on PRN.FM. And depending upon where you are in the world, East Coast time in the U.S., that's 10 10 o'clock. And you can hear our back shows on visionaries.podbean.com. And they've—I've been here a little, I don't know what, approaching a year. So there's a uh, nice accumulation of shows, which I like to listen. I love to listen to myself talk. Uh, actually, if you like to listen to me talk, go to YouTube, search John LaBelle, find my channel. I have over a hundred lectures on YouTube. I record my lectures. I teach architecture, and I record my lectures and put them on YouTube. And my students can then review them and uh, I have a little bit of a dispute with my colleagues. No one else does that where I teach. And I can understand part-timers feeling, wait a minute, you're going to record my lectures, put them online, and then you won't have me back next year. So I'm full-time, I have a guaranteed job, so I can be a little, more. I don't have to worry about that. But anyway, I, you know, I think it's a great service to my students. Also... Occasionally, you might recall from college, I'm in my 70s, and I'm still talking about college. That's because I teach. <laughs> but And I keep young because my I'm I, part of a team of 10 faculty teaching the first two years survey. And many of the members of the team are part-timers who just finished their Ph.D., and then when they get a full-time job, they move on. So I'm continually in touch with the young scholars and the scholarship they're doing. So keeps it interesting for me. But um, occasionally, they're just these brilliant lectures. And I'm thinking, well, that's lost. And a quarter of the class that was absent today aren't going to get—they just missed the Renaissance. <laughs> um, so actually, the guy who does the Renaissance— has me record his lectures too, so those are up. But there's just all this great stuff. I Years ago, I was listening to Brian Lamb, founder of C-SPAN, and he was interviewing some guests, and they were talking about a cultural C-SPAN. And that struck me as a great idea. I mean, I like C-SPAN, but I think it distorts our experience of the world. You know, it's all political. Political and <clears throat> current affairs. And there's more to life than that. There's art, theater, science, mathematics, uh, academic disciplines. It's all, you know, industry. What's Elon Musk up to? <laughs> so he's got a new company, boring. <laughs> and uh, so anyway... I bumped into Brian Lamb at a bookstore in New York, and I said, whatever happened with that guy who wanted to do a cultural C-SPAN? He said, couldn't get the money. So then I thought, you know, it's so other people I should approach who know people, you know, et cetera. And then it happened. You know, it's called YouTube. And uh, people I'm interested in, uh, Ray Kerr's file. Stephen Wolfram, Elon Musk, Peter Diamantis. That'll give you a little sense of, you know, I'm a kind of a techie future type. And all I have to do is search on their name on YouTube. And then you can go to filter and say, just give me the most recent month. So you don't get his lectures from five years ago. And there you go. Um, Tina Selig. She's this incredible person, teaches creativity at Stanford. And you can get her lectures online. Blows me away. So we have it. You know, we have our equivalent of cultural C SPAN. And we can tap in anytime, you know, like on the bus. <laughs> so anyway, I was um uh, thinking about science today, I open my I get a newsletter called InsideHigherEd.com, And it's a newsletter about academia. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of stuff about administration, you know and uh, academia is being taken over by the politically correct. And there's lots of spats about that, and those are covered more, you know, the so Inside Higher Ed covers more administrative spats than it does what's being taught. But the, the first piece uh, today was hoax with multiple targets, hmm. which right away recalled, and I'll mention it in a moment, the so-called hoax. Well, fake article is published calling the penis to be seen conceptually, not as a body organ. Debates take off about gender studies and open access journals. <laughs> so what the hell is going on here? And um, so I'm looking at this article. On Friday, two scholars published a fake article in the journal Cognet Social Science. The authors use their fake um, piece to satirize gender studies. The paper is called The Conceptual Penis as a Social Construct. The paper argues that people should not view the penis as a body organ. Quote, anatomically, penises may exist. Eh, They may or may not. Uh, That's a little dig at the social sciences. Social sciences in the heyday of postmodernism, contended that reality is a social construct. So in its extreme form, if we all believed that gravity made things fall up instead of falling down, things would fall up. Um, There's some people actually thought that. Uh, The paper argues that people should not view the penis as a body organ. Anatomically, penises may exist. But as pre-operative transgendered women also have anatomical penises, the penis vis-a-vis maleness is an incoherent construct, the paper says. We argue that the conceptual penis is better understood not as an anatomical organ, but as a social construct, isomorphic to performance toxic masculinity. So it goes on to about how men are evil and uh, they rape the environment and... Uh, Their terminal organs are symbolic of that. So if I had read this anyplace else, I'd say, yeah. I mean, isn't that what uh, the social science people believe? (laughs) Yeah, I I hear that from my colleagues. I see it all the time in academic journals. How is this a hoax? It sounds like the real thing. So uh, it recalls the most famous modern academic hoax, What's the most famous scientific hoax? I think it's Piltdown Man, right? That's a whole story in itself. Uh, in the early days of a <clears throat> study of human evolution, someone came up with, I don't know, they got a, what'd they get? A skull of a chimpanzee and a jaw of a human and put, you know, rubbed black stuff on him and buried it or something like that. So you can look it up on Wikipedia, Piltdown Man. But just before coming in, I looked up the Sokol hoax in Wikipedia. The Sokol affair, also called the Sokol hoax, was a scholarly publishing hoax perpetrated by Alan Sokol, a physics professor at New York University and University College London. In 1996, Sokol submitted an article to Social Text, a very respected uh, academic journal of postmodern cultural studies submission was an experiment to test uh, the journal's intellectual rigor and specifically to investigate whether a leading North American journal of cultural studies whose editorial collective includes such luminaries as Frederick Jameson and Andrew Ross would publish an article liberally salted with nonsense if A. it sounded good and B. it flattered the editor's ideological preconceptions. Well Uh, social Tech spit the bait, published the article. The day the article came out, there was an article in a really terrific magazine. I'm forgetting the name of it right now, but a uh, you know an academic ch- journal that sort of comments on the state of things. And their descendant is uh, what is it? A L Arts and Letters Daily dot com is the descendant of this magazine. It was a wonderful magazine, couldn't support itself. And but Sokol published an article on what he did. Come out the same day Sociotex came out. And the New York Times reported it on the front page. So that was embarrassing. And then there was just an uproar. Um Everybody wrote about it. Everybody wrote letters. New York Review of Books did a major article by uh, Weinberg, the creator of what's called the Contemporary Standard Theory in Theoretical Physics. And the arguments on the one side were, that's unfair. You know, he cheated. And the article on the other side was, these guys printed gibberish. You know? Didn't they read the article? And if they did, uh, what are they publishing articles about science if they just don't understand it? And what the article said was that uh, there's evidence in quantum theory that our point of view affects and changes reality. I think that's true. <laughs> but uh, the article went pretty far and used a lot of gibberish. So it's very famous. Anyway, um, this is reminiscent of that. In fact, the article in this morning's Inside Higher Education talks about uh, the Sokol hoax. Pardon me when I take breaks to uh, drink water from my sore throat. So um, this led me to some more thinking about science. And <clears throat> Um, eh, twenty years ago, twenty five years ago, string theory was an exotic, new topic that was very sexy. And there's a there's a fundamental problem in physics, which is that quantum theory describes subatomic particles, and Einstein's general relativity describes uh, large scale phenomena, gravity. They two are contradic- the two theories contradict each other, and you can't put them together. So there's lots of attempts to put them together. And <clears throat> putting them together is called, if you succeed, it's called a grand unified field theory. And the person who started work on that, spent the whole latter part of his life, got absolutely nowhere, was Einstein himself. And Einstein, in his later life, Uh, did not make important contributions to science, and people felt that was tragic. And in part, it was because he got hung up in trying to put together the grand 5 field theory. He was just unhappy with uh, quantum weirdness, and he wanted to overcome it. So uh, the current attempt is string theory. And string theory posits that the fundamental material of nature are tiny little coiled-up strings. They are so tiny. I think they're. I don't know if they're smaller than the Planck constant. Planck constant is pretty small. So, excuse me. So it posits these strings, and they ex- to make sense, they have to exist in. 10 or 11 dimensions. So now it gets weird. And what are these dimensions? Where are they? Well, they're all curled up in the string. Well, what the hell does that mean? And then they go on to say that, um, well, the problem is that the way string theory is laid out, there are something like 10 to the 500th possible outcomes of your equations. Well, that's trillions of trillions of trillions of times more than there are particles in the universe. Um, It's just ridiculous. So there's absolutely no way to test it. And a rival of string theory is called loop quantum gravity. Scientific American about mm, 15 years ago did a great article on comparing string theory and loop quantum gravity. But one of the major proponents of loop quantum gravity is, um, what's his name? I'll get to it in a moment. I've got all these notes in front of me, and I'm losing track of where I am. Hang on. Anyway. Uh, loop quantum gravity is pursued. Uh, uh, Lee Smolin uh, is uh, one of the major proponents of loop quantum gravity. He's at the Perimeter Institute in Canada. Actually, there's a Big Bang Theory about this. So early on in Big Bang Theory, um, Leonard is not getting anywhere with Penny. And what's the woman physicist's name? forgetting her name. She comes on to him and they're like, you know, dating and maybe should we, but then uh this is she's a loop quantum gravity person and Sheldon is a um is a string theory person. They get into an argument and Leonard takes Sheldon's side. He says, well I guess I like my I guess I like my subatomic particles stringy rather than loopy. And she says, well, how will we raise the children? (laughs) And Leonard says, well, when they're old enough, they can make their own decision. And she says, they can't decide for themselves they're children. And she walks out. So that's the end of their relationship. So anyway, uh, this is a hot topic. And Lee Smolin wrote, terrific little book called The Trouble with Physics. And he talks about the differences between loop quantum gravity and string theory. And he goes into the sociology of science. And he talks about how I was going to talk about evolution today. We'll get there. (laughs) He talks about the, you know, the social politics of science as opposed to just the scientific evidence. And there's a lot of social politics. Uh, You might recall the term paradigm or paradigm shift. So the term paradigm was introduced by Thomas Kuhn in his book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And he describes it as the... Leading establishment scientists of a period latch on to an idea, and that becomes the dominant paradigm. And we were told in school that that happens because that's where the evidence goes. And he shows that's not the case. Uh, He doesn't say, well, okay, then what is the case? Why does this happen? Well, I do in my book— My book, Visionary Creativity, How New Worlds Are Born, you can find it on Amazon. But anyway, there's science is like other fields. It's a product of cultural agreement. Now, scientists are very rigorous. They do a great job, and they have very good error correction. If they latch on to the wrong thing, uh, there's built-in mechanisms that eventually— that will be revealed. But it's still uh, a political cultural phenomenon. So in The Trouble with Physics, Lee Smolin talks about the herd mentality of the the string theorists. He describes how going back 20 years, there were maybe, you know, you could count all the string theorists on one hand. And it was so obscure and so difficult and required a kind of math that nobody had that there was, you know, nobody to work on it. It started to catch on. And next thing you know, it catches on. And that means if you're in theoretical physics and you're not doing string theory, you're not going to get a job. It's as simple as that. Only string theorists will be hired. So there's a swing of the pendulum from... Uh, nobody's doing it to every, literally, everybody's doing it. And the loop, chronic gravity, people are not accepted anywhere. They need their own university in Canada to be able to pursue their work. So in the book, The Trouble with Physics, Lee Smolin describes this phenomena, and then he talks about this herd mentality and, or groupthink, and he describes how the how nasty, politically nasty, the string theorists get. Not only they only do string theory; they won't look at loop quantum gravity. And Lee Smolin says, "Hey, come to our conference, or let a loop quantum gravity person present at yours. We've got some ideas that will help you um, get further with this stuff. Doesn't mean you have to adopt our, you know. But we're scientists." We have some interesting insights. You may find them helpful. Nope. They won't talk to anybody who is a... um, Here's a a little test. (laughs) Uh, If you have a climatology department that's big into climate change or global warming, you'd think they might, you know, let's say they have a dozen faculty and researchers. Maybe they want to have one climate change skeptic to sort of uh, keep them honest, you know, point out where they might be going down a blank alley. Nope. (laughs) Those people are not permitted anywhere near. They won't talk to them. They won't. If a publication publishes a, um, as a matter of fact, the New York Times published a very reasonable, skeptical uh, piece on the editorial page and a whole bunch of people threatened that they will not be interviewed by the Times anymore. The New York Times is now blacklisted. They will not talk to them. They won't write for them because they've engaged in this heresy. So, you know, you can see science as a religion. It has its heretics. It has its excommunications. And you can see it happening right now. So in his book, um, there's another book, Not Even Wrong. And it covers similar material about the problems with string theory. (laughs) Not even wrong is such a great notion. So I just printed it out from Wikipedia uh, before I came in here this morning. The phrase, not even wrong, describes an argument that purports to be scientific but fails at some fundamental level, usually in that it contains a terminological fallacy or it cannot be falsified by experiment. Or cannot be used to make predictions about the natural world. Phrase is generally attributed to theoretical physicist Wolfgang Pauli. So uh, there, there's something related to that in Big Bang Theory, where um, Sheldon, and, Sheldon's the genius, and Stewart is the kind of loser, socially awkward comic book store owner, but he's smart. He's gone to art school rather than being a scientist. And he's dating, briefly dating Penny. And Sheldon and um, Stewart run into each other in the hall between Penny's and Sheldon and Leonard's apartment. And they start an argument, and Stewart says something is a little bit wrong. And Sheldon, being, you know, a logical absolutist, says something cannot be... A little bit wrong. It's either right or wrong. There's no such thing as a little bit wrong. (laughs) Uh, uh, Pardon my digressions. There's a Seinfeld about that, right? Where it's it's a little coincidence or a big coincidence. And one of the characters' guests says, there's no such thing as a little coincidence. It's only a coincidence, Anyway, um Stewart says, of course something can be a little bit wrong. Says to say that a tomato is a vegetable is a little bit wrong, because technically it's a fruit. This is, to say that a tomato is a, is a suspension bridge is very wrong. <laughs> anyway, uh so the other book on the same topic is not even wrong. And which is how you know the critics are starting to look at uh, look at string theory. It's not even wrong. it's just this is no longer science. It's gotten into being a religion. So I was thinking about, you know, I was talking about science two weeks ago, and we got we were doing talking about evolution. And there's a point I want to make, and it came to mind again. My my current science magazine that I read is New Scientist. It's a British magazine, and it's weekly, and it's reasonably thin. Not as thin as Science Newsletter used to be, but, you know, it's good for keeping up. I'm beginning not to trust that it keeps one up on everything, and they're very biased in their point of view, very European, uh, but... By adding a couple of websites, I feel I'm pretty well covered. When I say biased, uh, they're totally religious fanatics about climate change. And also, they have this European point of view. Uh, Well, as, as Americans, some of us think that we should be open to new ideas, you know. I mean, look—you don't know where the future's going to go, you don't know what technology is going to bring. I was involved in a, in the business world in online when the internet happened, and I saw one year nobody—I mean, we knew what it was, but it was irrelevant, something in academia. And the next year, it was the biggest thing in the history of the human race. And so what that means, people in the industry, one year before it hit, um, didn't even notice it coming. So being open to those kinds of changes and what they can do for us. The Europeans have a different attitude. Europeans believe that they should control what's coming next. Uh, you don't just let things happen. And, of course, we think of uh, genetically modified food. Or think of CRISPR, which is the ability to manipulate DNA. We've been able to manipulate DNA for more than 30 years, but it was very difficult and took a very high-end laboratory. With CRISPR, a hotshot high school biology student can do it. <laughs> As mentioned on a uh, on a Big Bang Theory, crossing Ebola with a common cold, why would we do that? <laughs> anyway... Um, So maybe the the Europeans and the British have a point, but that's their position that we don't allow breakthroughs. We try to control them. So a couple weeks ago, there was an issue on odds-on, 10 science breakthroughs you can bet on. These aren't really all science, but the first one is a Mars colony. And so there are people serious about that. I mean, Stephen Hawking is... Declared it as a necessity, and Elon Musk is the kind of person who just does it. <laughs> He's got the Falcon Heavy launcher. You know, it's it's ready to go. You know, you need a hundred of those, and you can haul up the stuff you need. And the way they're talking about it, and there are hundreds of people signed up. Uh, they ain't coming back. Uh, they're gonna make this work. You know the people on the Mayflower didn't say, "Ah, oh, you know, I think I want to go back uh that, that was a one way trip, and you had to make a new world, and so there are people there are people working on that so thirty three to one I'm not sure what that means bookie yards or for the state of breakthrough to occur within ten years more calculator so I'm not sure that it's thirty one and thirty three that it's gonna happen or 33 to 1, it is going to happen. I guess they I mean it is going to happen. Non-Darwinian evolution. Why don't I skip that one? Because I want to come back to that. Human clones. Well, that's a, uh, I mean, you know. I'm trying to see what uh, non-Darwinian evolution... Which of these are part of the list? They're not. This article isn't well organized because I got it as a printout. Human clones. Well, that's obvious. I mean, if you can clone all these animals, human beings are just an animal. And most the animals they clone, you know, they do 50 of them for one to come out okay. So what about the 49 humans that don't come out okay? So that's going to be problematic. But they're talking about, what do they say for the odds? I'm not sure. Uh, Psychedelics licensed as pharmaceuticals. Yay! (laughs) Well, they've been waiting 50 years for that one. Uh, Duh. Well, they finally, you know, I had students who went to jail for having pot, you know. Now it's legal, sort of. So, you know. Did all those people who went to jail get their get their years back? Jeez. Commercial nuclear fusion. <laughs> the great thing about that, okay, so our nuclear power plants are fission. They split uranium or plutonium and actually I think it's uranium-235. And they split it and energy is released. And they capture that to make heat, to make steam, to drive the generator. Well, uh, in fusion, that's a hydrogen bomb, an H-bomb. And that's two molecules of hydrogen come together, form a helium, and that's what the sun does. So the sun is a continually exploding hydrogen bomb. So if we can do that, uh, lots of energy. Um, but the famous quote about that is, um, commercial nuclear fusion is 40 years off and they've been saying that for forty years perpetual motion uh, you get that on a quantum level that uh, becomes a um, hmm. proof there's no quantum weirdness that's an interesting one um, the that's sort of a bias of new scientists they don't like quantum weirdness I'm a big fan of quantum weirdness you know when the when the electron gets to the you know, gets to the fork in the road, it takes it, as Yogi Barra says. If you come to the fork, a fork in the road, take it. And uh, so you get parallel universes and human observation causing changes. Human observation causing changes in the past. You can set that up and do it. And so that's quantum weirdness. And a lot of people trying to get it to go away. Einstein tried to get it to go away. A better theory of gravity, that's always on the table. Um, Alien contact, we're waiting. Um, So, oh, you can actually, if you're interested, if you go to New Scientists Online, you can vote on these. Now, going back to non-Darwinian evolution. So, Uh, Darwin didn't know about two things, DNA, and he didn't know about DNA, and he did not know about mutations. So Darwin said, (coughs) uh, you have, a dog has a litter of puppies. There are six puppies. And they're not all identical. Or let's say a fox. fox has a litter of six puppies. They're not all identical. They are natural variations. And no, let's go back to the dogs. Now, you're trying to breed a new dog. You want a, you want a dog good for hunting. You're good for hunting that it can go into the water. If you watch the Westminster Kennel Club dog show, every once in a while they'll say, this breed was just admitted to the Kennel Club uh, two years ago. There's new breeds being created all the time. And the way you create a breed is you get dogs with the characteristics that you're looking for. You breed them. You select the pups that are closest to what you want, and hopefully you put the others up for adoption and maybe you destroy them. And you keep doing that till eventually you get what you're looking for, like a Rhodesian ridgeback with that ridge of hair down its back that used to hunt lions, and which is a, a recent breed. So that's artificial selection. So if you make an Arab, you know, you look at an Arabian stallion, wow, boy, are those things beautiful. How'd they get like that? They were bred to look like that. Uh, they were bred to be fast racers and to look magnificent. And so Darwin says, "Oh, that's artificial selection." You know, nature's probably doing natural selection. So now we get away from our dog and we've got a fox, and. Take an example from the moth. Uh, Fox has a litter of pups and maybe it's starting to snow. You know, there's there's climate variation and there's a lot of snow. And these red foxes, uh, their prey can spot them and they stay away. So they're in trouble. But occasionally there'll be a white fox in the litter. And the white foxes do better. Because they can get the prey, because they're camouflaged, they can sneak up in the snow. And so natural selection, the fact that the white foxes eat better, uh, (laughs) have more pups, survive better, selects for whiteness, and eventually this red fox turns white after some number of generations. Well, this can easily be observed. Lots of examples where you can see that happening famously with uh, moths in England that were white to stay on birch trees, which have white bark. The bark got black from soot uh, from the Industrial Revolution. Uh, The white moths stood out. The uh, black variants were camouflaged, and so all the white moths got eaten by the birds, the black ones survive. moths turn black. They cleaned up the air pollution 50 years ago. And, <coughs> excuse me, the trees are white again. The black moths get picked off by the birds. The occasional white variants survive. And the moths are white again. So we can see it happening. You take antibiotics. You, you know, you select for... You don't create, but you select for antibiotic-resistant bacteria in your system. Okay, so uh, that adds up over long periods of time. Gradualism is a key concept in Darwinian. Well, you know, how do you get from one species? Okay, how does your fox turn into you know? How does your wolf turn into a dog? How does how do how do you get from one species to another uh, through this change in color? Well. It's called geological time. Around the time of Darwin, it was discovered, oh, the Earth isn't wasn't created 5,000 years ago in a garden, but geological layers indicate it's millions of years old. Now we have the time that we need for this gradual changes to add up to new species. Well, there are a lot of problems with Darwin's theory by 1940s. It had faded into the background. There weren't a lot of evolutionists in biology. But then we got uh, an understanding of mutations so we can get rapid change. And, and then we've got something to select for because uh, you have rapid variations popping up all the time. And then we got 1953, Watson and Crick, understanding the structure of DNA. That helped. Better understand more about the mechanisms. So, great. Uh, that's called uh, neo Darwinism. That's Darwinian theory of natural variation and natural selection. And then you add in mutation and DNA theory, and you've got the contemporary uh, neo Darwinian synthesis. Uh, still problems. So, this article here in ten scientific breakthroughs. Problem is, one of the problems is that changes um, seem to take place rapidly. So, about thirty years ago, uh, Eldridge and Gould came up with what's an observation of what they call punctuated equilibrium. That creature comes about, stays the same pretty much, and then dies off, goes extinct. We don't see this gradual change. We see equilibrium, stasis, no change, punctuated by a quick dying off or a quick appearance of new species. By quick, they mean 10,000 years, which is apparently a very short period of time in geological time. So this um, new scientist talks about non-Darwinian evolution. And before Darwin, we had Lamarckianism. And Lamarck said uh, the, the giraffe stretches its neck to reach the leaves, and as a result, its offspring have longer necks. So stretching your neck, your neck gets longer, and your offspring pick that up. That's totally debunked. You know Arnold Schwarzenegger's kids don't have bigger muscles, um, except maybe by random. <laughs> so lots of Lamarckianism. But now there seem to be um, environmental factors can affect in a roundabout way how DNA works. So. That seems to be going on, but it's not what I want to talk about. I want to talk about something. And I'm finally getting to what I wanted to talk about today. Sorry it took forever. If we look around, we look at evolution, and then look at a famous book called um, Darcy Thompson's Book on Form. I'm trying to think of the name of it. But anyway, look up Darcy Thompson. And he shows the patterns within which things develop. And we look at nature, and we see it rich with patterns. And then we look at something like Stephen Wolfram's A New Kind of Science, and we see how hmm, it's um, simple rules can make these very elaborate patterns. So he uses cellular automata, or cellular automata, and you have like a checkerboard, and it's all white squares, and you make a bunch of them black. And then you make rules and say uh, different kinds of rules. This evolves from something called the game of life um, by a British mathematician. And what you do is you say, for example, if a black square has no, all white squares surrounding it, it'll die of loneliness, disappears in the next iteration. If a black square's got uh, two, to three, two to four squares surrounding it, it'll, re, it'll reproduce. The, the square to the left will become black. If a black square is totally surrounded by other black squares, it'll die of suffocation. Next iteration, it'll be white. And so you set up these rules, you put them in a computer, and you can watch these things dancing around. And certain rules make patterns that look just like bacteria on a Petri dish. And other things that are familiar. say, oh my God, nature's using these rules. You see these rules everywhere. Famous example is in fractals. So fractals mean are self-similar. So you have a... Um, say, a six-sided star. On one of the sides of one of the stars, you have half of a six-sided star. And then you zoom, zoom in on that, and on each point of that six-sided, half a six-sided star, you have a six-sided star. And you can zoom in as often as, how depending upon how powerful a computer is, zoom in as much as you want. You keep getting this similar pattern at all scales. So we observe how a tree, you know, has a certain look to the way the branches come out. And then there's a certain look to the way the limb, the twigs come out of the branch and a certain look to the way the veins come out of the leaf. You say, oh, my God, uh, these are all similar. And one conclusion is, The tree has a limited set of rules and it keeps reusing those rules to make its limbs, branches, twigs, and leaves. So um, we see evolution moving in patterns. We see the emergence of human beings, Arabian stallions. And the evolutionary biologists tell us that this is 100% random chance, and doesn't look that way. Now, observing that it doesn't look that way, the um, there are people who say, "Well, it looks designed. There must be a designer." And this has been the fallback position of the creationists who say that God created all the variant species. And uh, when they want to get it into science class, they say, well, intelligent design. We look at the you know the eye. It uh, couldn't have arrived through a series of accidents. It's obviously design. There must be a designer. And then they don't have to say the last statement, because it's going to be implied, the designer is God. So, uh, to express a uh, uh, political prejudice, fortunately, every time they go to court with this, they lose, or most of the time. This is not science. But, what about these patterns we see? What about the way things unfold? And The evolutionist makes a point of not seeing these patterns. They don't study morphology. You know, you start with the fertilized egg, and you get 2, 4, 8, 16, 32 cells, and they're a ball. How does that ball end up with five fingers with bones in them? Uh, There's, you know, we used to be told, well, uh, you have a gene for five fingers, where you have five genes, one for each finger. Well, we know that's not true. <clears throat> that, in fact, there appear to be genes for certain patterns. And then these patterns interact. So if you look at growing artificial organs, you want to repair a heart with stem cells. You Put the stem cells in an existing heart And they start to become heart cells. Put them in an existing liver, they start to become liver cells. They fall into the pattern. There's no understanding of how this works. And, um, you know, geneticists dismiss it. They say, we understand DNA. The DNA splits apart. It encodes RNA. The RNA... uh, makes a protein, the proteins assemble, we get the organism. Well, hold on there. That that doesn't adequately explain it, as Ricky Ricardo would say. That doesn't explain it. You made a leap there, quite a few leaps. So what is it about a stem cell being in the vicinity of a heart that's going to make it start being heart cells? Uh, And maybe the exact heart cells that are needed for the repair that it's doing. So um, until there's a willingness to explore these kinds of issues, uh, we've got, you know, we're stuck in this um, neo-Darwinism that's just absolutely inadequate, but you're not allowed to talk about it. So one of my favorite figures is Peter Thiel and... Uh, I've recommended him before. Look up his YouTubes. His book is Zero to One, about starting a company. He is a famous venture capitalist. He's one of the founders of PayPal, along with the rest of the PayPal mafia. And he went on to found some other companies, and he has a venture capital fund. His most famous investment was uh, the first outside investor in Facebook. So he controls a lot of money. And fortunately, he's generous with his time. I've seen him lecture. But his lectures are on YouTube. And one of the things he talks about is how, (laughs) there's is two kinds of companies. There's monopolies and not monopolies. He says, if you uh what do you want what you're looking for is a monopoly. You don't want to be the next, you know, Italian restaurant in Palo Alto. There's unlimited competition that keeps driving down the price. But if you can be the next Google um and you have a monopoly, then you you know you're gonna have a successful business. Well, he has a lot of um a lot to say, it goes far beyond business, very applicable to culture and the arts. I've actually listened to the book a couple times and also listened to his online lectures. But one of his favorite questions is, what do you believe that most other people, what do you believe is true that most other people do not believe is true? He's got to find a shorter way to put that. But anyway, um, if, you know, he'll ask that of an interviewee and they'll say, uh, The political system is broken. (laughs) And Elon Musk will say, yeah, uh, that's true. But everybody knows that. There's nothing original there. Um, So, and now it gets tricky because, um, A, are you original and insightful enough to have your own insights to see, experience, and understand things that are uh, not what everybody else, not the herd, not the group think. That's only step one. Step two, are you willing to state it? Are you willing to tell anybody. Our you know, our culture is not too forgiving of Anybody who deviates one iota from the group think, think. So I mentioned somebody had some, you know, reasonable uh, misgivings about some issues in climate change, had a piece in the op-ed section of the New York Times, and there's this rash of letters of people saying they will never read the New York Times again, um, and you know there are people like Freeman Dyson who has some questions. He's a, you know pretty heavy duty scientific figure, um, amazing family, but you're not allowed. You know so so step one is to gather enough information to be original enough in your thinking to have nonconformist thoughts. Step two is to be willing to say anything about it, and then step three. Is to be willing to do anything about it. Um, for example, if you follow the history of uh, search and Google, remember my sister saying, "I love my Google." I said, "What the hell is she talking about?" She says, "That's how you search on the internet." See, you use Yahoo. You know what? Well, what? What's this Google thing? Um, there's already is a search it's called Yahoo. Well. What Yahoo did was it looked for you looking for shoes. It looked for a page that had shoes in its text. And then it ranked them by, well, the page that had the word shoes most often would come up on top. Well, then uh, people figured that out. So down below where you, you know, below the screen, they put shoes 100 times. So the next person puts shoes a thousand times. Um, and what Google did is they had their secret sauce. They had an algorithm that would look at what other sites of that we respect for various reasons are linked to this site, and that determines its ranking. Well, it turns out AltaVista was doing the same thing. Uh, and AltaVista engineers try to get tried to get money from their backers to uh, expand their operations and the backers wouldn't do it. You know, what's it like to spend the rest of your life thinking we could have been Google? (laughs) Except for these idiot investors. Anyway. um, So Google came along and did something totally different. And... Interestingly, being at Stanford was a help. Um, You know, if you watch the movie The Social Network, it sort of gives the history of Facebook. And as it was building up, it was was purely inside Harvard, and he had hijacked some Harvard servers. And it took off within Harvard, and it was crashing the servers because uh, there was too much demand on them. And so he got a suspension and he got in trouble and stuff like that. Well, what Google does is it sends web crawlers out, looks at every website in the world, and it figures out who, what, who's linked to them. And that creates their uh, search directory and their ranking. This started to overwhelm the Stanford servers. The uh, Sergey and Larry were students there. And instead of telling them they had to cut it out, the Stanford IT engineers just rushed to get more servers. You know, these kids need servers. Get them servers. And so sometimes your school is supportive. Sometimes it's not. And uh, Stanford gets rewarded. They had stock in Google and uh I'm sure there are going to be donations from uh, the Google talent. Well, thanks for spending all this time with us. Just looking for my notes here. Um, My name is John LaBelle. The show is Visionaries. We're on PRN.FM every Monday at 10 a.m., depending upon where you are. And I just want to mention some of our back shows so go to visionaries.podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N, as a nancy.com, And the back shows will show right up. You click on them and listen or download, take them with you. And we have shows on robotics, future, transhumanism with Natasha Vita Moore, uh, the poster person for transhumanism. Uh look her up. She's a really interesting person. She was created, you know, a website redesigning herself. We talked about uh some writer, we spoke with some writers, we talked with Bob Walter, the Joseph Campbell Foundation, did a show on Marshall McLuhan, which you can listen to. Well, we have a bunch of clips of McLuhan, which we can find on uh online, so that's cool. And Lots more, a couple dozen of them. So uh, please go look. And you can catch 100 plus of my lectures on YouTube. So just search on John LaBelle. You'll come to my channel. So thank you and see you next week.